Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Alcohol Tipping Point podcast. I am your host, Deb Maisner. I am a registered nurse, a health coach, mom, and alcohol-free badass. And today I have Eric Rias on the show. He is a men's coach and interventionist. He has his own podcast called Hearts Over Everything, and he is the owner of Big Mood Mental Health. Um, which is also a sober advocacy group. So welcome, Eric, to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. appreciate you, Asher. Thank you for being on here. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm a Queens, New York native. Uh, I ended up in California in 2013 uh, in order to get clean from a heroin addiction. And alcoholism and uh when i made it out here i started personal development you know i was a 12-step guy so i started you know working 12 steps and learning <clears throat> some new principles about life i was a fitness guy so i started you know learning that every day if i put one foot forward eat right work out um my body and my life changed um and that just became a metaphor for life i just kept going Kept getting certifications, kept getting trainings, and uh, became, you know, went from, you know, coaching modality to coaching modality, kind of just enhancing what I do. So, so it was like fitness and health and wellness and, and health and lifestyle and mindset. Then I went to life and the life coaching and mentorship and mentoring kids. And um, now I, I, over the last six months, I've really um, been called to work with men. Um, only um do, you know not due to but um to accentuate and to um you know uh evoke the, the healthy masculine within a recovery setting and within the healing space um so i i'm a men's coach and men's mentor uh, and then i do interventions for men as well uh, i did i used to work with men and women but now it's uh i've really been called to to support the healthy masculine right now. Um, and maybe I'll go back to working with women one day, but yeah. Um, and then the sober advocacy portion is what we do on the podcast and what we do with, you know, I work with uh, clients and families um, of, of loved ones who are not prepared to go to treatment just yet. So I work with families over time, sometimes nine months, sometimes two months to get, to get their loved one into treatment and off the street usually, um, and I get to advocate for the family and for the loved one, and really work with the families closely and hear the tragedy of the moms and the, you know deeply how how it affects the family. You know, so that's really what I do. Um, that's kind of the progression of how I got here. Yeah. So you're you kind of cover all uh, aspects of recovery from the individual to the family and friends that are impacted by it sounds like absolutely um i have a soft spot for the moms you know mm -hmm. it was, it's uh I, I remember one of my worst memories of my addiction was uh hearing my mother cry um after finding me you know in a compromised extremely compromised position and uh so I, I remember that and I, I hear the worry in the mom's you know voices when I speak to them every day because I speak to these parents every day, you know, trying to save their 
help them help their children save their own lives really um so so yeah i've uh, I, I i try to cover all cover it all um within my within my company any need that needs to be met hopefully i can meet it you know when it comes to supporting addicts alcoholics and people struggling with mental health mental health afflictions yeah that you're really giving back can you share a little bit more about your story with addiction yeah um so i started drinking i was i I always share this actually is that i'm a survivor of sexual trauma Mm -hmm. so i do believe that my sexual trauma led to the immense discomfort that i felt um my entire life you know um just just i didn't i didn't think of it as as and i understand that what happened was wrong until i was in my 20s and everything i just i normalized it in my head rationalized in my head prior to that um but there was an immense discomfort that i felt um throughout my entire life and and uh by the time i was 12 or 13 i was an awkward an awkward you know young black kid around uh, uh, surrounded by white people surrounded by white faces and i just wanted to be a part of um and i when i took my first drink and smoked my first joint um the playing field was evened and i felt like we were all on equal footing at that point um and once uh once i put a substance in my body i don't stop that that's just what makes me a little different people like me a little different than than the average you know temperate drinker I, I, when I drink, I, I clearly was shown that I drank differently than my friends. Um, and I started to lose friends, you know, people couldn't be around me. Uh, I'm also dual diagnosis. I deal with bipolar disorder. So that accentuated the, the, um, that expedited the, the suffering of, of my, of my experience. Um, so there's a lot of, lot of mental breakdowns within that time and my substance use progressed um you know to to kind of find what what was going to work what was going to bring the ease and comfort that i so longed for um and i found i started to find downers xanax and and valium and things like that and then then percocet and then my my whole community was hit by the opiate epidemic very hard very hard i was i i I never did fentanyl i got sober before fentanyl was a thing um so my community was was oxycontin and oxycontin 30s and oxycodone things like that so we got hit with that pretty hard people started dying i I got really into selling and doing those in 2009 um and uh yeah like i said people started dying and and then when of course, when the the sale of those drugs was limited and it was harder and harder to get, the only logical option was to do heroin, you know, because it was cheaper, um, more more affordable, more accessible, um, and you know, it didn't make it didn't as an addict and alcoholic, it didn't make sense to me that oh, there's no more of these, I should stop using them. It made sense, okay, there's no more of these, I should find an alternative. Um, and my alternative was heroin, and I was a heroin addict from about 2011 to 2013. Um, lost a lot of friends, um, still losing friends. Um, almost went to prison, and you know, was living, fully living the street life and the projects, and 
in New York City, a lot of a lot of very cold winters and very cold summers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, that was what my addiction looked like, and um, had the opportunity to get sober. I have very loving parents who supported me to getting in treatment, which that's you know, um, that's why I love to work with the families because they're. I come from a family of loving parents who want me wanted me to get help and supported me in getting help and were willing to spend any amount of money and to do anything in their power to get me help. And they did, and I took the opportunity, came to California, and the rest is history. And now I do what I do now and and happy ever after. A lot of struggle in between there. Um, a lot of suffering still within recovery. Um, but it uniquely qualifies me to do what I do and have the perspective that I have. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm well suited to, to, to help people, to help people that I help. Yeah. And, and congratulations on your sobriety. Thank you. So what did you feel like, what do you feel are the unique challenges for men, um, and even black men specifically when it comes to getting help? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think I think less now more than ever, the understanding that we need help. And th- there's an immense amount of pressure on men that we that we don't acknowledge. It's just expected that we that we handle our business, right? But but we're meant to we're we're meant to provide for our families where with an economy that doesn't have um that doesn't pay more but expects us to work more. Um work work jobs that are unfulfilling, um, you know, raise children and, and we're supposed to be present for our children. And we're supposed to, we're, we're supposed to do all this easily. It's supposed to be easy and, and deal with mental health and, and deal with life and suck it up, you know, mm-hmm. um, we're supposed to, and, and honestly, even no matter how much compassion people say they have, that's still what they expect. It's still what they expect from it. Um, so the unique, so, what my goal is is to speak openly and freely about mental health with with zero reservation. I speak about my mental health challenges and my mental health experience with zero reservation. So other men can say, "Hey, me too," or "Wow, he talks about it. He has no no reason not to speak about it." You know, he has he's he's open, you know, open book about it. I should, I get to be at least a little bit more open. I get to grant, I get to be permission for other men to share. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think, I think the immense amount of pressure that men are under. Um, and then also, you know, there's, there's the hypersexuality that comes with the stresses of, of manhood um, and come with the cultural, um, the cultural conditioning of, of manhood where um, porn and and promiscuity are are celebrated and if not celebrated, they're tolerated and um, and accepted by us as men and by almost by everybody that like you know everybody watches porn every man watches porn and masturbates once a day or four times a week and that's just common you know business as usual and I just think, uh, in my opinion, that that is um, that it's diminishing the male chi. It's diminishing our energy. It's dimming our light, and it's providing it's providing a, a skewed perspective of what sex really is. 
um, and it's teaching our, our young men a skewed perspective of what sex really is, and it's causing sexual um, sexual dysfunction uh, and uh, in in young people, in young people who just you know are are conditioned. I started I saw porn for the first time when I was eight years old, um, and and thought that was normal. You know, it just happened to be around. You know, just casually around. So, um, so yeah, it's, I see. I see the sex. The sex one is, is a common one for me to to think about and discuss because it's so so prevalent. And I see. I, I saw how badly it destroyed things in my life. You know, just uh, the ego that comes along with that, and the selfishness that comes along with that, and the harm that it causes. Um, so I love to work with men in that regard. Um, but yeah, there's an immense amount of pressure and there's an immense amount of, um, you know, dysfunction that we tolerate and that we, um, uh, accept as normal. So those are the, those are the unique challenges I see and I like to focus on. Yeah, that, those are really interesting and something I haven't thought about before. Like, so you're saying there's like a stereotype for men to be like hypersexual and like prove their manhood through sexuality and is that what you're that's what saying? honestly that that's that's what I'm theorizing mm-hmm. because because if you look at the culture what men are willing to do the lies that are willing to be told um and the and the the how how quickly we're, we're we were condi- we're conditioned and how normal it is to cause harm in order to to satiate a carnal urge. Mm. Um, we're willing to put people we're willing to to just lie to women, just lie to women casually, and you know the whole idea of ghosting. Women do that too, but but and ghosting and gaslighting and and all these things that that men do, we go so far to do, and this is something that I've done, so I know. Um, this as far as we're willing to go to, in order to have some sort of conquest, and and it's a, and part of that I believe is is a biological need in their tw- in our twenties that like we're meant to put our you know we're biologically if and if we went into ancient times we would be trying to put our seed and everything mm-hmm. in order to continue to continue to populate our community and our 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 village you know so there's a biological component. But there's also a component now that we know that we sh- shouldn't be driven simply by our biology. That that you know, there's a culture of of manipulation in order to fulfill that biological need, quote unquote, uh, like uh, you know, roughly. So I do think there's I do think there's a level of overcompensation, especially with the level of stress and the the difficulty in 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 providing as, as, cause men do have a hard time providing these days. Mm-hmm. We do. It's just, it's women, women are, are, are becoming more and more independent, which is beautiful. You know, I, I come from my, my partner is, is an independent woman. My son's mom is an independent woman. My mom is a CEO of a corporation, a, a, a nonprofit. So I grew up just seeing that. So it's, it's something I love to see. And I, and I believe in reciprocity. Um, but men are, I think men are being left behind. And, and the jobs that, that men are doing that are tough jobs are, are overlooked or not looked at as quality jobs. 
you know so this there's a lot of stuff going there's a lot of pieces going on and mm-hmm. oh by the way men are not victims we're not victims we take, we get to take responsibility for all of this we get to take responsibility this is cuz you know there may be circumstances that are out of our control but we own all of the healing we own all of the healing so for me it's it's not like oh what was men because we even as a black man i'm i'm still privileged even as a black man, especially coming from the family I come from, I'm most definitely privileged. But there, there is we we do get to take responsibility for all of the healing that comes along with this. Um, so yeah, sorry to go off. No, I'm I'm so glad. Like I want to have other perspectives on my show, and you know, just and hear from more men and black men and. Um, so I appreciate having the conversation. And so you talk about toxic masculinity and the pressure of of being a man and, and having to provide and, and be manly, whatever that looks like, um, being unique to men, like a unique challenge. And that means not showing weakness or asking for help, especially with addiction or or drinking problems. Absolutely. And also I say this all the time. It's becoming quite redundant for me to say, but it's a principle that I believe in. I do not think toxic masculinity is the primary problem. I think the absence of healthy masculine leadership Mm. is the problem. So many men grew up with fathers who are not emotionally intelligent, who worked and just worked and didn't pay attention and didn't love on their children and were not emotionally available. And men had to do a caricature of what they thought manhood was and manhood is. So we're doing this, we're doing this dance of what the idea of what we think manhood is, which comes out in a toxic manner. But if we had healthy masculine leadership, if we, if we, if we saw men being integral, not cheating on their partners, staying in the family structure, raising their children, empowering their children, loving on their children. Like for me, I have two boys. I have two boys. And my partner has has a son who I will be potentially be raising. So there's many children for me that many young men for me that I get to pour into and I get to show what masculine can look like. Um, so, so they don't have to pretend to do a, a play of what they think masculine is because it always it ends up with hypersexuality it ends up with hyperaggression not being able to not being able to uh um conduct emotional nature it, it violence it comes out it comes out in all those ways all those ways that it came out for me and we see it culturally play out we see it culturally play out in in many communities it's not just the black community so but it's, it's, it's particular in the black community but um, we see it in every community. So I don't think it's toxic masculinity. I don't think masculinity is the problem. I think it's the absence of the healthy masculine and, and healthy masculine energy. I'm not talking about genitals. I'm talking about the energies of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think it's the absence of that healthy masculine energy that is the issue. So for me, I started men's groups. I have a men's group that meets every other week where men come together, process, men come together, we help the, we help the community. We raise money for our community. We come in and we have different facilitators. Each facilitator brings his own emotionally intelligent uh, 
lesson for the week and then and then there's open sharing and every man in the group gets to share and i want to open up more and more of those groups all around san diego and do them online as well so we can start exemplifying healthy masculine for one another um and for our children and if you don't have children if there's a young man who doesn't have children yet he can see wow these fathers are showing up for their kids you know and uh these men are showing up in their businesses with integrity these men are showing up in their community with integrity so that's that's my theory and i say that i say it all the time um but we blame it all on toxicity and i don't think masculine is inherently toxic yeah um so important so i i it was so interesting how you said like men are just and it starts when you're a boy like you're just doing a a character of what you think it means to be a man and sometimes that is getting wrapped up in drinking culture are you still there Sorry, I put you on mute. Absolutely, that that drinking culture, beer beer culture, and sports sports culture mm-hmm. is most definitely, and and there's nothing wrong with if I would say if you can drink like a normal person, quote unquote normal person, if you can be if you can limit yourself occasionally, have my and drink with moderation. All I'm all for it. I'm all for sovereignty. You know, everybody should. If, if you want to alter your consciousness in whatever way that is, you should be able to if it's done in a way that's not destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there is definitely a beer a beer culture and a drinking culture and a sports culture where men come and quote unquote bond uh, and also quote unquote uh, and also drink to excess and fight and can destroy and are yeah are destructive and 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 not productive um and so i I do think absolutely um the trauma of and the trauma of the abandonment of the fathers or healthy male role models lead to a void that needs to be filled and alcohol usually fills that void Mm -hmm. or some sort of substance or sex fills Mm -hmm. that void even for a man who's not an alcoholic it's it could just be the sex that fills that void and so what, what is healthy masculine leadership and energy? What does that look Ooh, like? I don't, see, that's, that's so subjective because I know what it doesn't look like. It doesn't okay. look like manipulation. It doesn't look like, it, 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 what it does, actually what it looks like is integrity. Mm-hmm. That's, if we could put one word onto it, it's integrity. It's showing up in an alignment. Mm-hmm. It's showing up keeping your word. It's showing up and, and, and supporting your community and supporting your household, not only financially, but emotionally. It shows, it shows up by us showing up. That's, that's, that's what, in my opinion, the healthy masculine energy. Um, and also it's the, when I say healthy masculine leadership, I do think leadership is part of the healthy masculine. I think men, I think men, we lead naturally and women also have masculine energy and women lead as well and women drop women rise into their masculine and drop into their feminine and men rise into their masculine and drop into their feminine hopefully fluidly you know that's something i practice is to be with my partner to be able to be submissive when need be so she can be powerful and i and, and we can go back and forth i think there's a there's a healthy dance to be done but um, 
the healthy masculine looks can look different, but I know what it's not. I know it's I know it's not taking advantage of people. I know it's not not being there for your children. Um, I know it's not a pissing contest. Mm-hmm. You know, that's I know that's not, that's what it isn't. Yeah. Wow. So interesting. Um, so going back to your work that you do um, with addiction, what would you say are your top tips for anyone looking to change their, I kind of focus on alcohol, like their relationship with alcohol. What would you say yeah. are your top tips or advice you have for uh, someone? Um, this is going to sound so, so crazy. <laughs> let Let yourself get desperate. Let yourself get desperate. I wish it was all the addiction that I've seen personally, professionally, all the people who struggle and all the families I work with, we rob people of their suffering. So we got to let people get desperate. So if we're in, inter, where, if we're interrupting, if we're interrupting someone's suffering when they're not ready, they're not, they're, it's not going to click. You know, this has to be done with the desperation of a drowning man. In order, if you're re, if you're the real alcoholic, right? If you're like the alcoholic that cannot stop, and no matter what, if you're if you're the heavy drinker, it's still the same. It's how, how badly, how well, how well do you want to be? So a sponsor once told me, she said, Eric, how well do you want to be? How badly do you want to feel better? So first tip is don't don't rob your loved one of their suffering, and don't rob yourself of your suffering. Keep going until. Till it hurts enough, and then when it hurts enough, I promise you, you'll do what you get. You, you'll do what you get to do, to to shift. Um, so that that's probably that's probably the biggest number one number one thing is uh, Victor Frankl speaks about the unique opportunity to suffer, um, and I don't. That's not missed on me. That's that's everyone gets their turn, and with with alcohol, feel all the pain, feel all the pain, and if you and if it's if you're not in pain. And then it's working for you. And if it's working for you, why stop? Uh, it, I, it, if, I, if you can drink, if you can drink and alter your consciousness and be okay and like really be balanced, then it's working for you. But if it's not working for you, think of that pain and how well do you want to be? And if you, if you want to be well, then you're willing to seek help and you're willing to change behavior. Yeah. And I... <clears throat> just want to maybe emphasize that you you don't have to hit rock bottom but it oh, kind of b- sounds bottom, like yeah go ahead but bottom is different bottom is different for everyone mm-hmm. and, and my job my job is to um lovingly interrupt family uh, loved ones so that they don't have to hit rock bottom but in my experience everyone has to hit a bottom their bottom may be emotional it may be spiritual. It may be homelessness. It may be progression of addiction, where it goes from alcohol, alcohol to substances. But every it doesn't. Rock bottom is relative. So for me, um, I've hit some some bottoms sober, and those sober bottoms were not homelessness and were not like bankruptcy. There were, but they were spiritual bankruptcy. There were places where where. I, I wasn't, I was so out of alignment with who I was as a person that I just, I, I couldn't take it anymore and I had to do something different. And so rock bottom 
you don't, it doesn't have to be homelessness, but you get, when you start looking in the mirror, when you start looking in the mirror and you really not liking what you're looking at, that could be your bottom. You can still have your job. You can still have your kids. You can still have everything. But when you're looking in the mirror and starting to, and starting to have, make, you know, make deals with yourself, lie to yourself, compromise your values in order to rationalize what you're doing, that may be your bottom. Yeah, that's a good point. Appreciate that. Um, what what would be some of your other? T- well, it's kind of interesting that you brought in family when you were, and I think probably just with your work as an interventionist. So maybe I'll go back to to that. Like, what what does it? How does that work? What does it mean to be an interventionist? What does that look like? Um, hold on one second. Let me fix my headphones. Um, what it looks like is loving interruption. That, that's what it is. It's a loving interruption of the detrimental behavior that's causing the suffering. Um, and we get to, the family and I get to frame all this for the loved one to show that it's not working. Based, based on results, what's working? Based on results, this drinking is this drinking is not working for you. We have the whole family together. We have mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, your daughter, your son. We have everybody here to like let you know and not guilt. We're not guilt tripping anybody. We're not guilt tripping anybody. We're writing love letters to our family, and we're saying, "Hey, we love you so 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 much. We're watching you destroy yourself." You know, and we're lovingly interrupting um, that experience. So that's what intervention looks like. That, that's the best way to put it. It's a loving interruption. It's not. It's not a guilt trip. It's never a guilt trip. If they feel guilty and shame, you know, that's part of that bottom, right? That's mm-hmm. part of that bankruptcy, um, which we want them. To, we want to evoke emotion. So if they feel if they feel poorly about themselves, then and maybe they should, you know, if you feel, and that's something that I, I theorized for a long time, um, in, as a coach. And it's the same thing with, 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 I thought the same thing with weight loss and with body, with, with body image. If you look in the mirror and you're like, I don't like what I look like to a point, if you're, if you don't like it enough, then you should change it. <laughs> and with the intervention, if you're not liking what you're hearing and you're not, not liking what you're looking in the mirror, mirror enough, then I will lovingly provide the resources to get you on a plane that day into a treatment center so you can change your life. I provide, I do all of the back end work so you can leave that day and go into treatment. So it's all set up for the family and it's all set up for the loved one to go right from this intervention, right from this loving interruption, right into on a plane with me and into treatment. So that's, that's, that's what an intervention is. It's loving interruption, but there's a whole, there's a whole process we go through pre-intervention. We connect with the family, let everybody air everything out let everybody express themselves because everybody gets to get, be heard. Everybody in the family gets to be heard. It's, it's, it's not just about the addiction is a family. It's a family disease and the family gets sorted out and their circumstances where sometimes multiple people in the family go to treatment. Sometimes mom goes to a mom goes to CODA meetings, you know, as part of as part of the treatment plan 
um, for for the entire family, as opposed to just the son or the dad going into treatment. Mom gets to go to Coda, you know. The the son gets to, kids get to go to Alateen or Al yeah, gets to go to Alateen or or adult children of uh, alcoholics um, meetings, you know. So there's uh, and so we we provide the pre intervention, then we go into the actual intervention. We do this all quickly within days. Mm. Mm-hmm. We do this all quickly within days because that window, that window is is short. That window is short. Sometimes, sometimes you don't need, you know. Sometimes you it doesn't it doesn't need to be urgent. But I come from the school of thought that if you call for an intervention, that person, especially if it's if it's a drug addiction, if it's drug addiction with fentanyl being what it is, mm-hmm. a person if if someone's addicted to drugs, whether it be meth, Xanax. Anything, anything pressed, any, any press pills, any, any injecting, um, uh, intravenous drugs, that person can die any day. So it should be, it should be done immediately. But al- alcohol, I think, I think also it's, it's always, it, it's always done quickly for me and with my process. I'm on a plane, I'm with the family on Zoom and then on a plane, you know, day, a day or two after, um, doing the intervention and, uh, like I said, the resources are all set up all all across the country to get you into a treatment center that's going to take you literally, it's already set up. We're going to go on a plane, rent a car, drive you to the treatment center, you're right there in their care, from my care to their care. And what, what has the response been like to the person who's being intervened? Um, for me, it's most people go. Mm-hmm. Most people go. But also in like 12 step, they talk about frothy emotional appeal will seldom suffice. Um, and what that means is, oh, so we need, to, we need you to stop. Please stop. Please stop. Please stop. That, that doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work a lot of the time. And I understand as an adventurist, that's why I created the advocacy program where we work with the family over months. We're working with family over an extended period of time if they don't go to the initial intervention, because they they may the chances that like some some interventions say oh well, I have a hundred percent success rate, um, but then how many leave? How many stay sober? Mm-hmm. Um, and and honestly, the numbers are eighty percent of people who go into treatment and don't stay sober. So they might go to treatment, but they but they're not they may not be ready to go to treatment. They may have been guilted and they may have had the emotional piece that worked, but what stays? And for me, uh, if they most of the most of the time they go. I've had two people not go out of a number of interventions, but we work with the family sometimes over I work with families over nine months to get their loved one into treatment or to get a conservatorship or to get the loved one into better care and um, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to work with the family over a long period of time to get the job done to save save their loved one's life. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Thank you for sharing about that work. It's interesting. It is interesting. I don't know how it's, it's interesting how I got here. I I just wanted to be a personal trainer with a full schedule <laughs> yeah. seven, seven years ago. That's what I wanted, and here we are. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. This is what you should be doing. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm I'm right right where I'm supposed to be. <clears throat> I I think I've heard you talk about radical acceptance before. Absolutely. What Absolutely. does that mean? 
Um, so actually my partner just posted this as well. Um, peace is acceptance. Um, and radical acceptance and radical, and the big thing I talk about is radical responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but rad- radical acceptance is completely understanding where you are and being content in where you are, not complacent in where you are, not unwilling to change where you are, but to be fully, fully, okay, this is where I am in space and time. I can be here and I'm not going to judge it. It's not good or bad. It is where, it, this is where I am and that's okay. But what, what are the next indicated steps? Radical responsibility is owning where you are, how you got there. Because there's nobody, the world's not happening to us. The world's happening for us and the world's happening, yeah, the world's happening for us. So how do we get where we get, where we're to our destination now? And are, do, do we want to change it? And then we make, then we take full responsibility for the, for the healing. So those are the things that I speak about quite, quite a lot. It's, it's the responsibility, but the acceptance, that's where the peace is found. Because for me, here's, here was my experience. I wasn't one of those business owners that made, that got made, made successful money right away. I was broke for a long time and I had to learn to be content without any contingencies, content without any, just understand that. Okay. Trust God's timing. This is where I am. I know I'm putting the work in. I know I have good, good motives. I know I'm, I know I'm a good person. I know I know that I'm I'm good in what I'm doing. It's just not making. It's not equaling dollars and cents right now, and that's okay. Um, and being and being able to accept where I was, I was able to find some solace in my mind and in my heart, understanding that okay, I mean I have everything that I want, but I accept that this is where I'm supposed to be right now, um, and I can keep doing the work, but. I, you know, there may not be much I can really change right now. So, you know, it's it, when we find ourselves in in that that acceptance, no matter what, we find ourselves a little bit more peace. It's when we're it's when we're restless, irritable, and discontent, trying to change everything, needing to change everything, is where where we're we're wrestling with the world around us. Yeah, can I say you sound like Black Buddha? Oh, do I? Thank you. Like, it's a very Zen concept, like that, that peace with where you are right now and being okay with that, um, you know, accepting things as they are, not as you would have them be. And then that additional step where you said radical responsibility, owning, owning where we are. Um, can you talk a little more about things don't happen to you? They happen for you. Absolutely. Um, my life just about as tragic as it, as it can get. I have, I'm dual di- duly diagnosed sexual trauma, racial trauma, violent history, almost went to prison, and a heroin addict and a sex addict. Just about every affliction that can go on, <laughs> every every trouble that could happen has happened. Um, besides losing my parents or losing a child, you know. I just have, and I've been divorced. I've just, I've just struggled. Um, but it's all, it's all made me who I am today. The, the, the words that I'm saying right now are words that I've, are, that come from my experiences. And my experiences uniquely qualify me to help others. So life's happening to you if you're not finding purpose in your, in your pain. 
But when you're finding, when you find pain in your purpose, when you find purpose in your pain, you, you are prepared to be of service to the world around you based on what you've experienced. A friend of mine uh, is a is a womb coach. My partner actually, she she works in the womb space. She works in womb health and and women's health. And she had she had a tragic experience with where she she lost a baby, and. It, it's just tragic. This is about just one, of, just about one of the most tragic things that a woman can experience, right? As we all know. Mm-hmm. And I told her, I said, "This is now when you when you're helping women heal their womb. This is just another piece of the puzzle that you can that you can provide service and you could pr- provide support. So all those tragedies that happen to in perceivably to uh, to our lives and to us." can be shifted on their on their head and used to serve others if that's if you are evoked enough to do that some people don't want to you know don't feel they can be of maximum service with their with their struggle and they stay in a victim mentality but if you if you shift it and say okay now i can now i know better now i can teach now i can mentor now i can do this with my even doesn't have to be a coach you can do this with your children these are lessons you learn so your children you've you shift. You can shift the generation with things that have happened in your life. You can shift generational curses. Say, I know this happened to me. This happened to me. So now it's it's something that my child may not have to suffer, struggle through or suffer with. So it's 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 all happening for you. Yes, like you 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 didn't get that job. Yes, it wasn't for you. That job. There's a better opportunity for you. You know the disappointments. Yes, they. It, there, it wasn't for you. Something, something better is there. How can I serve? How can I serve? And that's another way. That's another way to get out of yourself and to find yourself not suffering is to be, be into a place of like, how can I serve my community? You know. And I wasn't always like that. That that's new. That's new to me. That's recently, through through some work I was doing, was I like, okay, I get to serve my freaking community and I get to like be of impact. Um, and before, even though I was coaching, now I look on a more grand scale and, and on the podcast, it's like these experiences can now be the permission for others to say, okay, me too. I can make it as well. There's hope, you know? So it's not, none of the stuff that happened in my life happened to me at all uniquely qualified me to serve. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, the the world needs more people like you leading the way that you are leading and being the example you are. Thank you. I really, that means the world. Yeah, thank you um, for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts. This is really interesting and giving me a lot to think about, too. Um, and I think it will help a lot of our listeners and especially our men who are listening. Um, how can someone find you? Everything that I do is on Eric underscore Big Mood Coach. Um, that is my business card. That is my promo. You can find the podcast links there. You can find coaching offerings. You can find we're putting some courses and some ebooks. You can find a link to my to my first workbook. You can find the link to everything that, that I've done and that I do is, is on that social media. And everything that's on my social media is a direct reflection of my life. There's no fluff there. It's where, there's no pretending. So you're getting me there. But it's Eric underscore Big Mood Coach. And then BigMoodCoach.com is the website. But we're, we're 
we're shifting that around. But so so Eric underscore Bingo Coach is the best place to find everything about me. And go to Hearts Over Everything on Apple, Spotify, you know, Podbean, everywhere, every platform, and YouTube, Big Mood TV. We have video of our podcast as well. Oh, that's great. And I'll put your Instagram, the at Eric underscore Big Mood coach on the show notes um so people can find you i really appreciate what you're doing i i love this conversation and i thank you so much for your time and i can't wait to see what else you put out into the world thank you so much thank you for having me actually thank you eric blessings take care Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm always here for you guys, so please feel free to reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com. Again, I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, see you next time.